0: This week on Myths and Legends, it's four small stories of dogs. You'll see how the male Norse deity Loki ends up as the grandmother of a famous horse, and a tiny dog king will bravely go to battle for his kingdom, fighting alone against huge wolves, and it ends exactly how you think it would end. Then, on the Creature of the Week, we'll meet a tiny old man who lives in anthills, who will change the color of your pee if you damage his home, or just mind your own business when walking by. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 9, Generations. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Each week on our show, we choose a narrative, and I tell you the story as it was originally written. This week, however... I'm going to pick a theme and bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, dogs. Dogs are kind of the perfect merging of civilization in the wilderness. I don't know if you know this, but dogs are a domesticated animal, and thus wouldn't exist without humans. Dogs are the descendants of wolves that dared to get close to groups of humans, to scavenge off them, and eventually to rely upon them. The humans began to rely upon these wolves for protection, or letting them know if something was approaching. And as the years turned to centuries, and the centuries to millennia, we began to make the distinction between dogs, the loyal, friendly, domesticated animals, and wolves, the dangerous, vicious beasts that haunt the woods. Dogs today retain little of their wolf heritage. Stray dogs are scavengers. They spend a few hours a day eating what they can find, and then the rest of it just goofing off. They don't spend time in packs, but are accompanied by one or two other dogs. Still, the wolf is inside them. They aren't so far from their wild forefathers that they are a different species or anything, as you can easily find dog-wolf hybrids that are domesticated, yet have those wild strains in them. As everything, the difference between a dog and a wolf, of civilization in the wilderness, exists on a continuum. The four stories I'm going to be telling today explore that continuum starting in the time of myth, when a wolf was the ultimate foe of gods and men. In the second tale, I'll explore the stories of the black dog, a beast of near-mythic proportions that represents the line dogs walk between hunter and protector. Then, we'll meet the dog king of Denmark, which is exactly what it sounds like. He's from a time when both humans and dogs were little better than animals. Then I'll finish out with a legend of the saddest dog story you've ever heard. This is story one. It's called Give Him a Hand. We're going to go back and visit the Norse gods and goddesses for the first time in about eight episodes. This story takes place before the Volsungs, and before the story of Baldur I told in episode 3a. Loki, as you probably know, is a trickster god. But he's also a father. And a mother. But we'll get into that. The Norse myths aren't as bad as the Greek myths, with their new ubiquitous rape, incest, and philandering. But they aren't exactly children's stories either. Suffice to say, Loki had several children. His most interesting children, as it turns out, are the ones that he did not have with his wife. They are the stallion Sleipnir, and the three we'll talk about today. With regard to Sleipnir, the main Norse gods, called the Aesir, so Odin, Loki, Freya, Tyre, Balder, all them, wanted to get some free fortifications built. So they contracted with a giant to do them. The only issue was that they didn't know he was a giant but we'll deal with that later too. The deal was such that he had a very short timeline to complete the job, and he could only do it with the help of no man. Well, he wants his horse to help him, and Loki doesn't see a problem with that, so he convinces the Acer to just, yeah, let his horse help him. It's no big deal. Unfortunately for the Acer, this stallion turns out to be better than several men, and it looks like the builder is actually going to be able to complete the job on time. The gods are mad at Loki for letting the man use the stallion, and they put it on him to find some way to stall production. He's determined to use any means at his disposal to make this right. He thinks of one. He transforms into a beautiful mare, and the stallion can't handle it, and chases Loki, in the form of a beautiful female horse, into the forest. Loki finds that he can't lose the stallion, and the stallion chases Loki, and the Builder chases the stallion all night, and they lose a whole day of work. The Builder finally gives up and returns, and finds that the Acer the norse gods have made the discovery that the builder is a giant the relationship between giants and the norse gods is very complex suffice to say they mostly hate the giants the giants mostly hate them but they also get together with the giants and have children with them it's very confusing and thor's big thing is that he's a giant killer as we'll see here so because he's a giant they can disregard their oath to him and they call on thor who smashes his skull in with a hammer done and done As Thor is wiping blood and bits of bone off his hammer, everyone sees Loki coming out of the forest. A mare with his, or her, head hung low. Oh, hey, it turns out we didn't need to distract him after all. He was just a giant, so we had Thor kill him, and we don't have to pay him, they say to the downtrodden Loki. What's your problem? Well, the stallion caught Loki. And it did what stallions do to mares that they're very attracted to the plan having backfired for Loki in the worst way possible, he then finds that he's pregnant. After however long the gestational period is for beings that are half-horse and half-god, he gives birth to Slepnir, the eight-legged horse that Odin rides around on. Then I hope he sat down and did some serious thinking about his life and all that his hijinks have gotten him. But as we know with Balder, Loki just keeps on being Loki. Oh, and remember that Grani, Sigurd's horse from episode 3C, was the child of Slepnir? Well, that would make Loki his grandmother. Yeah, mythology is weird. Anyway, at another point in time, Loki also gets together with a giantess. And this time, Loki is in the form of a male. And it's weird that I even need to specify that. With her, he has three children. The Midgard Serpent, Hel, spelled H-E-L, and Fenrir, also called Fenris Wolf, but we'll call him Fenrir here. The children were brought up in the land of the giants, Jotunheim and there were terrible prophecies said about all three of them. So terrible that Odin demanded the children be brought before him. They were, and he immediately seized the serpent and cast it down into the sea that surrounds the world. It kept growing and growing, though, until it encircled the whole world and started biting in its own tail. When he finally lets go, that's the end of the world, but, as we'll see, the Norse gods are really cool with delay in the inevitable. Hel is a bit more reasonable, and while she can't stay in the world, Odin gives her a realm to rule. You'll remember that Sigurd mentioned Hel when he killed Fafnir, and she is an Underworld-esque figure. She is gloomy and all-around unpleasant, having a complexion with a blue tint to it. Think about her as sort of a Hades figure. The last is Fenrir, who is just kind of a larger-than-normal wolf when the Aesir take him in. They keep him in the house, but, like the Midgard serpent, he quickly grows too large. Tyre, one of the gods, is the only one brave enough to feed him regularly, and his increasing size, in combination with the prophecies that he will destroy them all, make the Aesir wary. They decide that something must be done. Fenrir must be bound so that they can control him. Of course, he can talk and understand things and all that, and they come up to him with an especially strong fetter, and pose it as a challenge to his strength. He looks at it, and consents to let them wrap him up. He smirks, and the first time he flexes his muscle, that fetter was shredded faster than one of the Incredible Hulk's shirts. Fenrir's strength was increasing daily, so when they came to him with a fetter that was twice as strong as the first, he figured it was risky, but he could do it. He thought about it, and knew that he would need to do risky things to gain renown, and allowed himself to be fettered. It takes a bit more straining, but he was able to tear it. He was panting, but he did it. The Acer were panicking. That was the strongest thing they could make with the materials that they knew of. Odin sent a messenger to the land of the Dark Elves to seek out a dwarf who could craft something. They know just the thing and forge Glepnir. The messenger brings back this thin, silken ribbon the dwarves assure him is impossible to break. It's impossible to break because it's made out of six impossible things that don't exist. The noise of a cat's footsteps, the beard of a woman, the roots of a mountain... The sinews of a bear, the breath of a fish, and the spittle of a bird. They invite Fenrir to an island in the middle of a lake and show him the ribbon. Everyone tries to break it, to demonstrate its strength, and no one can. Fenrir is suspicious. If he did break this ribbon, it would offer no renown since it looked so weak. If he couldn't, then it was made from cunning and treachery. He refused to be bound by it. He explained that if it was treachery, they would either kill him or leave him in this remote place. He said to try it, he would need a show of good faith. He needed one of the Aesir to put their hand in his mouth. If it was a normal ribbon, the god wouldn't have anything to worry about. If he couldn't break it, and they unbound the wolf, the god would also not have anything to worry about. However, if this was treachery, and they tricked him and didn't unbind him, then the god would lose as much as Fenrir could get. The Aesir hesitated. Fenrir noticed the half-second and realized that he had them. He was surprised when Tyre, after a moment of hesitation, raised his hand. Fenrir looked at him. This was the one that had been brave enough to come and feed him when the others saw him as a monster. If he had anything close to a friend among the Acer, it was Tyre. Why did it have to be Tyre who stepped up? They were now locked on a course that would make them enemies, and their relationship that had previously been one of a caretaker in his ward would now be known only for the violence that will take place between them. Tyre knew what needed to be done, though. He knew the prophecies, and that this would be the creature that kills Odin, the Allfather. He was already too powerful, and they needed to bind him. He placed his hand inside Fenrir's mouth and felt the wolf's razor-like teeth on his skin. Fenrir and Tyre looked at each other while the Aesir wrapped up the wolf. The time came for him to test his strength, and he strained against the ribbon, but it only hardened. Fenrir looked at his friend and Tyre looked at the animal he had cared for. There was no mistake what was happening now, since all the Acer were cheering that they had finally trapped the beast. Rage at the betrayal welled inside Fenrir. Tyre didn't move his hand, though. He kept his word, even as he felt the wolf's jaws close around it, even as it snapped off, and he pulled his stump of a wrist out. He chose to pay the price for his people. I like to think that he both feared and pitied Fenrir, and gave up his hand in order to compensate for binding him. Fenrir would become the monster they all feared, and while he maimed Tyre here, he would kill Odin at Ragnarok. Tyre would be forever without a hand, but he would be held in great renown because he had been brave enough to sacrifice that for his people, when none other had been willing to step forward. That brings us to the second story today, and this is less of a story, and more of an extended creature of the week. I'm going to talk about the legend of the Black Dog, primarily in England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This legend isn't one particular story, but rather a collection of stories that has led to a general conception of the creature. The Black Dog is a large beast, often the size of a calf or small cow, that haunts the wilderness. There seem to be as many different stories of the Black Dog as there are villages in England, But in general they tend to be shape-shifting demon dogs with shaggy fur and large red eyes they also have a tendency to linger around crossroads or places people have been executed they're mostly malevolent and if you see them it's said that you'll die within the year they can be spectral hounds that will spot you then sink into the ground or maybe they'll be accompanied by a ghastly horseman some are thought to be the souls of people executed for crimes that have returned to take the form of this beast one particularly famous story from folklore was of a black dog named Black Shuck, who attacked two churches on the same day. On August 4th in 1577, in Bungay, in Suffolk, England, a huge, shaggy dog burst into the doors of the Holy Trinity Church during a lightning storm. He jumped in the praying congregation and then began mauling people. It's unknown how many people Black Shuck killed before the church's steeple came down through the roof. The storm passed from Bungie and continued on, seven miles down the road to Blytheburg, where once again the black dog showed up. He appeared in the back of a church and came to a man and boy who were praying and somehow wrung their necks instantly as he passed by. There's absolutely no explanation as to how this happened. They slumped over, but Black Shuck was surprised to find someone attacking him. The man, standing up for his congregation and hitting Black Shuck with his hand, found that his hand was burned by the spectral hound, who barked back in anger and burst out through the doors of the church, retreating into the storm. The congregation looked at the doors and saw two burned marks where the hound had passed. Those two marks are still there to this day, and they are called the Devil's Fingerprints. Today, the town of Bungie's coat of arms contains the black dog to commemorate the incident. Not all the stories of the black dog portray him as a hellhound, though, and like dogs... They have a protective, domestic nature mingled with the wild. Mr. Hare and Mr. Wharton were eating dinner together, and Wharton told Hare that the strangest thing had happened to a man he knew. His friend, Johnny Greenwood, had to ride through a wood to get where he was going. The wood was about a mile, and while that doesn't sound long to us, where it would be about a minute on the highway, you have to think about being on a horse, picking your way through the forest path at night. Remember, it's nighttime, so he'd want to take it slow, So this ride through the dark forest could take up to ten minutes. The moon was hidden under clouds, but Johnny could see what was in front of him. He could feel the sweat on his palms gripping the reins as his horse trotted into the forest. He knew it would be dark, but what light came down from the moon was choked out by trees. And right before he lost the light completely, he saw a great beast sitting up ahead. The size of two wolves, it was a black and shaggy dog with red eyes that seemed to glow in the darkness. He tried to spur his horse on but the creature would only go so fast in the darkness and didn't seem to see the beast before the darkness enveloped them he saw that it wasn't attacking them but rather running beside the horse soon they were running in complete darkness through the woods greenwood's eyes were open as wide as they could go to try to suck in any light at all he could hear the horse's hooves and the hound padding along beside them panting it was eerily quiet in the forest and he thought he heard whispers in the darkness, ever so quiet through the gaps and the noises from the two beasts. If some bandits were lying in wait for him, as was more common in those days than it should have been, then there was nothing he could do now. He could see the faint glow of light on the other side of the forest, and look down to see the hound was still beside him, half the size of his horse. It radiated wild energy, and though Greenwood knew that if it was going to attack him, it would have done it already, He couldn't help but be a little afraid of this creature. And then he was out of the wood. He sighed as if he had been holding his breath the whole time and looked down at the dog, but it was gone. He looked back and saw nothing but the wood. He returned home and lived out the rest of his long life. Many years later, a chaplain was called to the jail cell of two condemned prisoners. He listened to their long confessions, which included years of robberies, murders, and assaults. There was one that was of no real consequence to the chaplain, of a murder that had almost happened. Years ago, in a forest in the middle of the night, they had been lying in wait for some man named Greenwood. They knew he would be passing through the forest that night, and they had planned to attack him in the darkness, murder him, rob him, and leave him for dead in the dark wood. They had been all set to move, too, when at the last moment this huge black dog had joined up with them. It was like no other they had ever seen, and they stopped in fear. Neither wanted to risk this beast attacking him. They decided to wait for another, but no one else came that night. They let the bumbling greenwood pass into the darkness of the forest, safe under the protection of the black dog. This brings us to the third story, The Dog King of Denmark. Before I begin, in this story, I'm using a couple different accounts of tiny dog kings in Scandinavia, because apparently there were multiple tiny dog kings in Scandinavia in the Middle Ages. If a territory or kingdom was conquered, the overking might place a small dog in charge of the defeated people as an extreme insult. This one is set just a few years after the saga of the Volsungs. The king of Denmark, who was said to be named Helgi, was killed. It's somewhat possible that this is Helgi hunting Spain, From the saga of the volsungs remember that random son of sigmund who got in that stupid insult battle anyway after killing king hodbrod he gained his kingdom then he died and a foreign king took over the land to demonstrate his power over the people of denmark he sent a small dog to be their king but he made it clear that the person who told him of the death of the dog would be executed the danes then took it more seriously and took care of the little guy There's one source that describes the actual reign of the small dog, with him having a castle, crown, and being dressed in kingly clothes. He also signed documents with a paw dipped in ink, which is actually really hard to get a dog to do if you have one. There are differing accounts on his death, but the one I liked the most was that the wolves attacked the castle en masse. Now, I have a miniature dachshund, and she's very dumb. I love her, and me calling her dumb isn't me being mean, it's a statement of fact she doesn't know a lot of things but the thing she doesn't know the most is how small she is it was the same way with the dog king he led the charge against the wolves sprinting out in front of his soldiers it could have been because he was a brave inspiring leader but also because he was a tiny dog who didn't know he was a tiny dog the people watched in horror as he was torn apart by the wolves before the actual soldiers with actual weapons could stop the onslaught everyone is stewing in anxiety But someone steps up, named Snow, and offers to go to Hakon, the king of Sweden, and tell him the news. He travels and meets with the king, and through a series of riddles, he gets the king to say that the dog died. And thus, via loophole, doesn't get executed. Now, the riddles are either complete gibberish or the smartest thing I've ever read. Regardless, I don't understand them at all i posted them to the website, with a link in the show notes, and anyone who reads them over and can construct at least a plausible argument will earn the official title of the Myths and Legends podcast, Riddle Master, and I'll announce your name on the show. Since the dog was dead, Snow hadn't told him, and Hakon didn't care who was king of Denmark. He said, whatever, and made Snow king. Everyone was surprised when Snow returned alive, and even more surprised when Snow turned out to be somehow worse than the little dog king. He became drunk with power, and was harsh and a cruel man. There were dissidents in his court, and a man named Roth spoke out against him. King Snow intended to kill the man, but he didn't want to be seen as harsh, so he tried to send him to his death under the guise of an errand. He sent him to a giant that was supposedly prophetic, believing that Roth would be killed after any interaction with the giant. He wants Roth to ask the giant how he, King Snow, will die. The giant is hostile at first, and demands three true sayings from Roth, or else she'll kill him. He says three true sayings, and the giant relaxes. They talk, and Roth asks how King Snow will die. The giant refused to say anything more, but gave Roth a pair of beautiful gloves to give to King Snow. Back in Denmark, Roth presented the gloves to Snow, who was annoyed that Roth was still alive, but the gloves were a nice consolation. That day, he was going to preside over an assembly. He stood up in front of the crowd and put on the gloves that he had received from the giant. He wanted everyone to know that he was completely powerful, and even the giants were sending him fantastic gifts. He had not thought about the question he had sent Roth to ask, though, or about the implication of the giants giving Roth the gloves as an answer. The gloves fit perfectly, and as soon as they were snug on his hands, they began to itch. It was only a little at first, but soon it was so bad that it stopped him from talking. Then he started screaming. A black mass swarmed up from his gloved hands, following along his body. He pulled one glove off, and shrieked at the bloody, eaten waste that was left of his hand. As the black mass moved down to his legs and ate them away, he dropped. The leaders of Denmark stood up to see what was going on. They saw fleas scurrying off in every direction, away from the half-eaten corpse of snow the successor to the dog king, had been eaten alive by fleas that had come off his magic gloves. The man that was so adept at wordplay that he avoided death at the hand of the Swedish king to become king himself had ignored the most obvious answer to the question that he posed to the giant. The gloves that she gave him were to be his manner of death, as they were enchanted with multiple hungry fleas that would come out the moment he put them on. I can imagine the air was thick with irony as the leaders gathered around Snow's corpse, not only was the man who succeeded the dog king somehow worse than the dog, but he died by being bitten to death by fleas, where his predecessor had died rushing out to defend the kingdom. Both, however, were completely oblivious to basic facts that could have saved their lives. The last story today is one that tells of the triumph of a dog over what it used to be, and over a human that descended down to an animal's level. You probably have heard it, but it's short and sad. It's the story of Gellert. Around 600 years after the Arthurian legends, there was a prince in North Wales named Llewellyn. I know that's an American pronunciation, and I looked the correct Welsh one up and practiced and practiced, but I just can't get the pronunciation of that double L at the beginning down. He was gifted a dog by King John of England, who you might know better as the villain in many of the Robin Hood stories. This was a large, grey dog the prince named Gellert, who often accompanied the prince on his hunts. One day though, he refused, and wanted to stay back in the prince's home with his infant child. The infant was sleeping, and once again, as the father of an infant, I can't imagine leaving my son to take an hours long hunt, but that's precisely what the prince did. He left Gellert in the cabin with his son, and went hunting. The sun was going down, and the prince needed to return. He began to be able to see his breath in the air, and through his breath he could see the light of his home far off. As he got closer, he realized he could see it so well because the door was open. His heart beat faster. It could be anything. Remember that this was the 12th century, so to him it literally could have been anything. From a troll coming to take his infant, to a dragon that had burst in, and spewed poison throughout the house before eating the two living things that mattered most to him. He dropped what he had killed on his hunt and drew his sword. As he approached the house, he hesitated to crane his neck around the door, wanting, but not wanting, to see what was inside. He saw his dog and realized that it was so much worse than he could have ever imagined. His dog was sitting there, panting, covered in blood. His eyes darted to his son's bassinet, but it had been overturned on the floor, and the blankets were bloody as well. His most trusted companion had killed the one thing that had mattered more to him, his son, and he had the gall to sit on the floor and act as if he should be praised. The prince wanted to check the bassinet, but he looked at Gellert and saw the specks of flesh on the beast's mouth and knew that he didn't want to see what scraps the dog had left of his son. With equal parts rage and sorrow, He attacked Gellert with his drawn sword. After the first stab, Gellert knew what was happening, but he didn't fight back. He only yelped until he couldn't yelp anymore, staring at the pain-wracked face of his master. Tears, which preceded wild, uncontrollable sobbing, streamed down the prince's face. The dog was dead in front of him, his sword hot with its blood, but he could still hear the yelping. He stopped and listened. It wasn't the dog, but it was coming from the other side of the room. The prince scrambled to his feet when he heard the bawling of his infant son from underneath the bed. The boy was hungry and scared, but otherwise okay. It was then the prince noticed something else in the room. In the corner, out of view of the door, was the corpse of a massive wolf, long cold, with blood congealed on his torn throat. The prince, clutching his son to his chest, had made a horrible mistake. He could tell from the back of the boy's shirt that Gellert had lifted him from the bassinet and hidden him before the wolf could attack. It made sense now why Gellert didn't fight back when the prince had put him down. The look on the dog's eyes when he saw that the prince was enraged with him. The prince could only guess at the sad, confused final thoughts of Gellert. Didn't he do a good job in protecting the boy? Why was the prince, his friend, hurting him? It was said that Prince Llewellyn didn't smile again after that day, and that he could still hear, from time to time, the final, pained yelp of his friend, Gellert. These stories are as much about our relationship with the canine as they are about the canine's relationship with the wild. It's not surprising, given that, as I said at the top of the show, without humans, dogs wouldn't exist. In the story of the Dog King, a dog was trusted and lauded, and actually might have been a better ruler than his human successor, though it's complete speculation on my part on that one. It's interesting to consider the cause and effect in the story of the Norse gods, too. They are destiny junkies, and one has to consider whether the prophecy that Fenrir would destroy them all was self-fulfilling, meaning that their reaction to the prophecy had led them to binding Fenrir and turning him into that enemy that would destroy them all. Lastly, the story of Gellert shows how humans and dogs can have a lasting impact on each other. Even though the prince believed Gellert to be the worst type of monster, Gellert remained the hero, and he didn't fight back even when his life was being ended by the very person he loved most, due to a hasty error in judgment. It's an instance where human and animal switched places, with the prince having acted rashly based on emotion, and the dog restraining himself out of self-control and love, even to his own death speaking to us about the relationship between civilization and the wilderness, human and animal, and how delicate the divide between the two can be. That's it for this week. Next week, we're going to go farther back than we've ever been before, and I'm starting the original story of the labors of Hercules. Or, if it was one of those terrible internet ads, this demigod discovered 12 weird tricks to stop aging. Dermatologists hate him. I recorded last week's show before The Little Mermaid, so there are a ton of people to thank. Thanks so much to History Goes Bump, Grandma Canoe, Cersei T, Maureen Karen 13, Evil Jedi Hamster, I think it should really be Evil Sith Hamster, but whatever, Eli No, Why Is It So Hard To Get A Name, Miranda Mixie, Sir Teddy III, Rooney 1888, and QWERTY UIOP 117. For the last person, I'm sorry about your mom, and I'm glad I could help in some small way. I hope she's doing better now, and that you're able to get some sleep. If you want to leave a review, links are in the show notes, but you can go to itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, thanks to everyone who's reached out on Twitter with feedback about the show and suggestions for future episodes. It's really awesome to hear from you, so please keep it coming. My Twitter handle is at MythPodcast. I also tweeted a picture of Abby, my miniature dachshund, so there's a link to that in the show notes too. The creature this week is from Philippine mythology, and he's called the Nuno Sapunso, which translates to Old Man of the Mound, and I'll just call him that from now on to keep from messing up the pronunciation anymore. He's a very little old man with a long gray beard who lives in an anthill or termite mound. He's a very angry man, though, and will do harm to anyone who destroys, disturbs, or even walks by his mound without first asking him permission, you know, because all those are the same thing. Oh, and when I say anthill or termite mound, I don't mean the little things that are inches tall, but the mounds that are 3 to 6 feet, or much, much taller. They're often thought to inhabit not just mounds, but to live underneath large rocks, trees, riverbanks, caves, or backyards. So, basically everywhere. There are many ways to avoid the wrath of the old man. Little kids are advised not to play outside between noon and 3 p.m., and to be home by 6 p.m., children also need to be quiet in places where the Nuno might dwell. So, once again, everywhere. Like the Little Mermaid, this just seems like a ploy to blackmail kids into being quiet and getting home on time. If you need to pass through a field of anthills at a bad time, you can tell him, I mean no harm as I pass through your territory, old man of the mound. And he might let you through. If you don't do this, or if he's just having a bad day and doesn't care if you ask permission, the Nuno can curse you. What, you may ask, might that entail? Well, it goes from kind of funny to terrifying to downright weird. A curse from the old man of the mound may result in copious amounts of back hair, swelling or pain on your body, vomiting blood, or the worst and weirdest of all, urinating black liquid. This is presumably a result of not only choosing not to respect the old man of the mound, but doing the exact opposite and going out of your way to urinate on the mound. So, When in doubt that a mythological creature might be living in something, maybe don't pee on it. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by the stalwart Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.